Hi, welcome to episode 537 of the Fantastic Forecast. I'm Dave Elliott, and I don't normally stand when I hear the Star Spangled Banner, but I do always stand when I hear anything by Bon Jovi. In every episode of the Fantastic Forecast, I'll be talking about a different issue of the Fantastic Four, starting with issue 1 and going all the way to issue 645. And today, it's Fantastic Four 537 from June 2006. The Hammer Falls, Part 2, by J. Michael Straczynski and Mike McCone. So, Thor's hammer has landed on Earth. No word on where Thor is. And it's been there for six months. Doctor Doom and his Doombots have shown up, and for some reason, Doom wants the hammer for himself. How he's going to lift it, I don't know. Reed and the Fantastic Four are surprised to see Doom. Reed asks Doom how he escaped from hell, the last place we saw him, and we see that Doom is thinking, followed by a flashback to Doctor Doom in hell, about to be attacked by some hellish creatures, and without his technology, he still has some mystic powers, and when the creatures attack, Doom starts kicking some ass, and the fighting stops when there's this loud noise, and the sky appears to open up, and they see a vision of Asgardian gods fighting with each other. That's a tolerable viewing option for someone in hell. I would have expected them to be forced to watch episodes of, I don't know, The Apprentice or something. Dr. Doom says, I know these faces. They are Asgardians, locked in a final pitched battle. Dying, dying. It's Ragnarok, the death of the Nordic gods. And there's a note that says, as seen in Thor 80 to 85. How many Ragnarok stories have they done in the pages of Thor? He says, The magnitude of their battle is echoing across creation, rending the very fabric of hell itself. It's ripping tears in the dimensional plane of hell, and Doctor Doom is trying to ride through the energy, and in the glowing energy of the ripping dimensional fabric of hell thing, I really don't know how to describe this, Doctor Doom sees the hammer of Thor, but no, it's just out of reach. The hammer goes flying out of hell, back to Earth, and Doctor Doom follows close behind. Ah, so there's a very simple explanation of how Doctor Doom got out of hell. I once got out of jury duty the same way. That makes no sense, but I'll move on. Doctor Doom returned to Latveria, where he found his Prime Minister sitting on his throne, looking at all the Doombots and saying that Doctor Doom sure has a big ego. Well, he also has a very low threshold for insults, and he's hiding there among the Doombots, and he comes out, he grabs the Prime Minister by the neck, and he snaps it. And he starts giving orders to locate that hammer. And back in the present, Doom is about to answer Reed's question about how he got out of hell, but instead he says, It's a long story, and it matters not. Apparently it matters enough for them to devote nine pages to it. So Doom walks away, leaving the FF to battle a bunch of Doombots. While they fight, Ben le leaps after the real Doctor Doom, and it's hammer time! Sounds like Ben is trying out new catchphrases. That would have been a very good one. If this comic book had been published in 1990, Doctor Doom and the Thing trade punches. Doom points out that he crawled through hell to get there. Actually, he crawled out of hell to get there, and that nothing will stop him. He flashes very brightly, temporarily blinding Ben Grimm. Doom finds the Hammer of Thor, which I will not be pronouncing the name of, 
and he goes to touch it. From a short distance away, Reed, Sue, and Johnny see a bright flash of light. A column of light shooting up out of the ground. They head over and they find Ben on the ground, saying he feels like a roasted marshmallow. They look over and they see Dr. Doom by the hammer. Doom says, No, it's not right. I thought I felt the touch of Asgardians as they fell. Felt the power of Thor, just for a moment as Ragnarok tore through hell itself. I thought, I thought it would be enough. I was wrong. I will not allow myself to remain and suffer your gloating. Keep the cursed hammer. Doom does not need it. And he walks away. Oh, poor baby. Couldn't lift the hammer of Thor, and he's making crazy excuses. Like, he didn't want it anyway. Doom gets in his ship and he flies away. Johnny asks, What was that, Reed? But Reed has no idea. Maybe by touching the hammer, Doom woke up the power of the dying Asgardians. That's an obvious guess, but Reed's not sure. He looks over and he sees Ben trying to pick up the hammer without much success. The story ends as the, at the bus depot and a radio is delivering a, a report about that bright flash of light and how it caused a blackout all over Oklahoma. Some guy, we can't see his face, is buying a one-way bus ticket. We don't know where the bus is going, but a guy on the radio says, something major is coming to Oklahoma. And that is the end of that, an issue that doesn't seem to have anything to do with Civil War, despite the big logo on the front that says Road to Civil War. But here's something that does have something to do with Civil War. Hi, welcome to episode 537, part 2 of the Fantastic Forecast. Today it's Civil War number 1 from July 2006. It's Civil War Part 1, I guess it's the title as well, by writer Mark Millar and artist Steve McNiven. So let's start with Speedball. By the way, those were the exact words that John Belushi uttered at the beginning of the night he died. And there's this control room of a TV station, Channel 8, WTNH. And someone in the control room is talking through a radio or something to Speedball, who, along with the rest of the new warriors, are outside a house in Stamford, Connecticut. Speedball replies to the camera crew and to the guy back at the station that there are four people inside the house who are on the FBI's most wanted list. Cobalt Man, Cold Heart, Speed Freak, and Nitro. Really? Those four lamos are on the FBI's most wanted list? I would imagine the other people on the list are people like the Red Skull and Magneto, and then Cobalt Man, Cold Heart, Speed Freak, and Nitro. Apparently, the camera crew is part of a reality show that the new warriors are taking part in. Oh, I know it sounds kind of sleazy, superheroes with their own reality show, but don't disparage reality shows. One of these days, I'm sure the host of a reality show will become President of the United States. And that man is RuPaul. So as part of the reality show, the new warriors are going to bust in and capture these bad guys live on camera. But someone is taking out the trash and they spot the new warriors. So the young heroes, including Speedball, Namorita, and some other heroes who aren't named. Night Thrasher, I think, is one of their names. So they rush into the house, bust through the window, and 
the new warriors start fighting these four bad guys, and when Namorita goes to take on Nitro, who has some kind of nuclear powers, he lights up, he creates this huge explosion that destroys a huge chunk of the neighborhood. Later, after the dust has settled, the Avengers, the X-Men, and the Fantastic Four have arrived to help clean up. Captain America finds a ripped up flag on the ground to stand over while he surveys the wreckage. Such a drama queen, that guy. Cap and Iron Man are discussing how 800 to 900 people died just so that the new warriors could film their stupid reality show. The kids were totally out of their league, he says. It sounds more like Cap and Iron Man are blaming the new warriors more than they're blaming Nitro. Exploding and reforming is Nitro's thing, and when he's fought people like Captain Marvel and Iron Man before, he didn't explode enough to kill hundreds of people. So Nitro was like, Captain Marvel, eh. Iron Man, eh. Namorita, oh no, I'd better explode big this time. It seems to be an odd overreaction to Namorita. Also, Cap and Iron Man are insinuating that the new warriors are responsible because they're inexperienced. But they've been around since the 1980s, and Namorita has been in the game since 1972. I'd hardly blame the New Warriors just because they had a camera crew with them. Why does that make it any worse? First, I would just blame Nitro. Second of all, I would blame the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. If those criminals were so dangerous, dangerous enough, dangerous enough to be on the most wanted list, how come one of those teams didn't go after them first? I'm sure Reed would have had the resources to find those villains very quickly, and Sue could have put up a force field around Nitro. Eh. It just seems very weak to pin all this on the New Warriors. They weren't doing anything out of the ordinary, just going after a bunch of lame-o bad guys. Who knew it would literally blow up in their faces? Now in the Civil War movie, the event that touches off everything is the destruction of an entire city in Sokovia, destroyed by a robot, Ultron, created by Tony Stark himself. This I can understand people being upset by, and I can certainly understand the backlash against the Avengers. Iron Man created the very villain that caused all the destruction in the first place. But Nitro wasn't created by the New Warriors. They just fought him like many other superheroes have fought him. Why Nitro decided to blow up this time and kill so many people is rather mysterious and unexplained. Nearby, some firemen find a few survivors under the wreckage, and they call some X-Men over to help. Scott and Rachel Summers go over, and Rachel lifts up the rocks for their powers. A group of Sentinels appear the big giant mutant hunting robots, which is kind of scary to this one little kid, but his mother assures him that the Sentinels are the good guys just there to keep an eye on the X-Men. Nearby, Goliath, a big giant man, and Miss Marvel are discussing recent events, and Goliath seems to think that this is going to touch off a witch hunt against all superheroes. Next, there's a clip of the Larry King show. On tonight's show, Superheroes! Should they be banned? I'll discuss this with a woman I hope will one day be one of my ex-wives, the She-Hulk. She-Hulk says that with thousands of supervillains in the world, it would be crazy to ban superheroes, but to train them and give them badges sounds like a reasonable response, says the woman with no family and no secret identity. And at a church memorial service, even the preacher is going off on the new warriors, saying that they caused this tragedy no mention of Nitro. It was all the New Warriors' fault. Let me go back and look at that scene again. Namorita flies at Nitro, 
pushes him into a bus. He says, they're not the bargain basement losers that the new warriors are used to. And Nitro blows up the neighborhood. I still don't see what Namorita did that was all that bad. And why did Nitro overreact so much? It's weird. This actually makes me think of that great DC Comics limited series from the 1980s, Cosmic Odyssey, where Green Lantern John Stewart is acting like a jerk, overconfident, with a lot of hubris, and in his, in his attempt to save this planet by himself, he pushes Martian Manhunter aside, tries to handle it alone, and fails, and the planet blows up. It's a great scene, and clearly, John Stewart, he screwed up everything, and is totally responsible for that disaster. But here, I don't see how Namorita screwed up. She pushed Nitro into a bus. She didn't really say anything or do anything special. And I don't think Nitro is a character that has a history of killing neighborhoods filled with children. So after that church service, Tony Stark is walking out and some lady comes by and spits on Tony Stark because her son was killed in Connecticut. What? Now she blames the Avengers too? It's like she's in the wrong civil war. This is not the movie where Tony Stark is responsible for the deaths of all those people. She accuses Tony of funding all the superhero activity with his billions of dollars and says the blood of her dead son is on his hands. And we see another clip on CNN where the support for the Superhero Registration Act is being voiced. And back in New York, the Human Torch flies in and meets a date for a night at the club. They skip the line and they start to head inside, much to the chagrin of the people waiting in line for hours. Johnny brags about saving the world from Galactus, so maybe he deserves his free pass. I don't think that's why they gave Johnny the free pass in. He's rich and good looking, that's probably why. Some guy screams back, what about the next time you blow up a school, jackass? To be fair to Johnny, he never blew up a school. He did burn down one, though. So anyway, Johnny gets into an argument, and then someone hits him over the head with a bottle. And the news report later goes on to say that this is just another example of increased attacks on New York's superhuman community. So later, back at the Baxter building, Reed is having a big meeting with most of New York's so-called superhuman community. Doctor Strange is there, along with the X-Men, New Avengers, Old Avengers, Young Avengers. Doctor Strange still doesn't like the idea of working for the US government or getting arrested. Iron Man says that the Connecticut incident was a wake-up call and they should all become public employees to help people sleep better. Considering that half the country hates the federal government, I don't know how that's supposed to make them sleep any better. Falcon expresses the opinion that he does not want to become some kind of super cop. Yellow Jacket, Hank Pym, has the opposite opinion, saying, Why should we be allowed to hide behind these things? Wolverine replies, Because the world ain't so nice outside your ivory tower, bub. Isn't Wolverine Canadian? If he doesn't register, will they revoke his visa? Is he an illegal? He might be an illegal. Unless he's on some kind of TN visa. I don't think they have a classification for superheroes. Maybe in, and maybe in this universe, they have a special visa for superheroes, the SH-1B. Ben Grimm seems to disagree with Wolverine, saying that Johnny might not be in the hospital if superheroes like Wolverine weren't out there giving all superheroes a bad name. Well, last time I checked, Wolverine has never burnt down a school. Spider-Man shows up and says that if this law is passed, a bunch of superheroes just might hang up their tights. And then Sue says, the secret identity thing isn't such a big deal. The Fantastic Four have been public since the very beginning, and it's never really been a serious concern. What? 
Did she just say that? Are you shitting me? Never been a serious concern? It's always been a serious concern. They've always had to deal with people attacking their headquarters. They always have to deal with bad guys trying to kidnap or kill their children. Sue just finished dealing with this issue of her children being unsafe and the government wanting to take them away. And they had a safe house picked out for Franklin and Valeria and someone blew it up with a missile, which in comic book time was probably only a few days ago. Her and Reed are always lamenting the fact that it is unsafe to be raising children as a group of publicly known superheroes. This must be the most outrageously out of character thing anyone in the entire piece of shit Civil War miniseries says. Has Secret Invasion begun already? Has she already been replaced by a scroll? Give me a break. Not a serious concern. Ugh. So dumb. So, so dumb. Daredevil sa uh, says ominously that this may be the end of the way they do business forever. So meanwhile, on the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier, six miles over New York City, Captain America is meeting with Maria Hill and some other agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. She asks him if he thinks the other heroes are going to agree with this registration act or not. Cap says he has no idea. It's not for him to judge. But he goes on to say that he thinks this act will split the heroes right down the middle, putting them at war with one another. He figures the heroes that work close to the streets like Daredevil and Luke Cage might have the biggest problem with the law. So, nobody you can't handle, Agent Hill asks. Excuse me? Cap responds. She says that she needs Cap to lead the Avengers as they capture any superheroes who won't obey the law. Cap says he's not too keen on going after people who are just trying to do good stuff. She says she's asking him to obey the will of the people. Cap, Cap shouts back that superheroes shouldn't be involved in politics and stuff. They're above that. All the armed, armored soldiers, shield soldiers around Cap click off their safeties on their guns. Cap tells them all to stand down, but Maria Hill says that he's not in charge. They have tranquilizer guns, and they're going to use them on Cap. This is insane. Completely insane. Damn you to hell for this. Cap says that to Maria Hill. But I think we can all say the same thing to Mark Millar. Tranquilizers now, she screams out. But Cap jumps into action, tossing the soldiers all over the place, punching and fighting, and more armored soldiers show up, and Cap escapes by jumping off the helicarrier and landing on a passing jet fighter. Keep flying, son, he commands the pilot. Back at the Baxter building, night has come and a group of heroes are still meeting when the Watcher shows up, and Doctor Strange is like, Oh, this is not good! The next day, there are protests outside the White House, and inside, in a meeting of the President and the Cabinet Secretaries, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld is telling the story of how Cap landed that jet in a football field and took the pilot out for hamburgers and fries, which he thinks is a pretty funny story. The President says, I'm glad you think this is funny, Mr. Secretary, because I was under the impression that our registration plan was controversial enough. Look. Even the president is acting out of character. No way would George W. Bush call him Mr. Secretary. He'd call him Don or Donnie or his nickname Rummy. In reality, President Bush would be like, Hee hee hee, that's a funny story, Rummy. Caparino is one badass dude. Hee <laughs> hee, I like his style. I don't even like George W. Bush at all. But this just doesn't sound like a conservative plan at all. Or a liberal plan. It sounds more like a, a fascist plan. Like something that uh, might happen under a Donald Trump presidency. Reed Richards is, 
is in the room with Iron Man and Yellow Jacket, and the president expresses concern that Captain America has just become the figurehead to the anti-registration movement. Iron Man says ominously, Leave Captain America to us. And that is the end of issue one, which brings us to... Hi, welcome to episode 537, part three of the Fantastic Forecast. Today it's Civil War number two from August 2006. It's Civil War part two by Mark Millar and Steve McNiven. And the issue begins with the Vulture and Grim Reaper. How did those two villains come to know each other, by the way? That is not explained. But they've been captured and chained up by Captain America and left for S.H.I.E.L.D. to come arrest them. On the helicarrier, Commander Maria Hill. I'm not sure what Nick Fury is doing during all this. I guess just like in the movie, they had to leave Nick Fury out because he would totally be on Team Cap, right? So Maria Hill is learning that within 72 hours, a total of 15 super criminals have been captured like that. And Maria Hill worries that Cap can't do that by himself, which means he must not be on his own. So we see the day's newspaper headlines. The New York Times, Registration Act passed by Congress. Boston Globe, President promises swift action. Daily Bugle, Captain America goes into hiding. Washington Post, Tony Stark backing superhero reform. New York Post, Moon Knight fathers multiple love children. Okay, maybe not that last one. In New York, we see a group of pro-registration heroes working together to defeat a giant Doombot. Reed Richards, She-Hulk, Iron Man, Miss Marvel, Tigra, Hank Pym as Yellow Jacket, and the surrounding crowds cheer them on. Later, back at the Baxter building, Sue asks Reed how it's going, and he says he's super excited by the Superhero Registration Act. He says, I haven't been this excited since I saw my first black hole. Sue points out that the whole thing means jail for half their Christmas card list. You know, that's the one benefit of the Superhero Registration Act. Once everyone is registered, sending out Christmas cards will be so much easier. Reed points out this huge math equation on his noteboard. He calls it the exponential curve, the number of super beings is following, and the apocalypse we're facing if unlicensed activity isn't brought under control? This is so weird. Seeing Reed acting like such a ninny over unlicensed superheroes. Hey, they were unlicensed superheroes for 45 years, and they did okay. You know, I think you can take it all the, uh, the anti-superhero crazy people, all the anti-mutant bigots, and all the pro-superhero registration people, and put them all together in one big old basket full of deplorables. Over at the Daily Bugle, J. Jonah Jameson is very excited that the superheroes are finally gonna have to register and reveal themselves to the world. Now, at least Jonah is acting in character. At least this is the law he would have always preferred. Johnny asks Jonah if he thinks all the superheroes will register. And Jonah replies, No, just the smart ones. And he says this just as Spider-Man swings by his window. Spidey, by the way, is wearing a terrible spider armor outfit provided to him by Tony Stark. It really is hideous. The entire time that Peter Parker spins up Tony Stark's butt is hideous. Meanwhile, with Tony Stark, He's fretting over the fact that Captain America has gone rogue and isn't going to register. And in Times Square at midnight, a message flashes on the big jumbotron saying, Registration Act becomes the law. 
So 24 hours later, Patriot from the New Avengers is running along, jumping from rooftop to rooftop after trying to foil a crime. But he gets chased by some helicopters and they try to shoot him for being an unregistered superhero. He goes flying through a window. He tries to call his teammates to tell them that S.H.I.E.L.D. is after him. He looks up and the building is being flooded with gas. And then down on the ground, the rest of the Young Avengers are being shackled up and led into a S.H.I.E.L.D. van. We see Daredevil and Luke Cage discussing the situation. Luke says Captain America and Falcon are on the scene. Soon, the S.H.I.E.L.D. armored truck is attacked and taken, and the guards are tossed aside, and the truck is taken to a secret S.H.I.E.L.D. safe house, known only to 33rd degree S.H.I.E.L.D. officers, of which there is only one, Nick Fury. The new Avengers are welcomed to the Resistance by Daredevil, and I see Cloak and Dagger are there, and there's a blonde guy with glasses. He was driving the truck to begin with, working undercover as a, as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. I don't know who he is, I think it might be Steve Rogers, but they don't tell us that. Dagger tells everyone to come check out the television, where Tony Stark is giving a speech. And this, of course, is probably my least favorite moment in all of Civil War. I call it the moment that ruins Spider-Man forever. So Tony introduces Spider-Man, and he comes out wearing his classic red and blue costume. And he says he thinks the Superhero Registration Act will help heroes become legitimate and earn back the public trust. Back at the Daily Bugle, J. Jonah Jameson is freaking out. He's about to crap his pants in just a few seconds. Spider-Man says, I'm not wearing my old mask because I'm ashamed of what I do. I'm proud of who I am. And I'm here right now to prove it. And he pulls off his mask and reveals to the world that he's Peter Parker. Once again, Peter has a wife and an aunt who he has now placed in terrible danger. Here's a guy whose girlfriend, Gwen Stacy, was killed when someone figured out his secret identity. There is no way, no way, Peter Parker willingly stands there on television and pulls off his mask. It's so stupid. And obviously, well and then, six months after Civil War, Peter Parker makes that deal with Mephisto, which undoes his marriage and gives him back his secret identity, which essentially reboots Spider-Man. Something that I thought Marvel would never do. DC reboots their characters all the time, but Marvel does not. Or they didn't, until this colossal blunder of a miniseries came along and ruined Spider-Man so bad, they had to resort to drastic DC-style measures. One of the things that kind of irks me about Civil War, and one more day for that matter, is that if Mephisto wiped out this event, Spider-Man revealing his identity to the world, he wiped that out of existence, that drastically changes the events of Civil War. As we will see, the journey of Spider-Man from Team Iron Man to Team Captain America is a huge part of the story, but Mephisto changed all that. So this version of Civil War that has been published and republished and republished over and over again has been rendered non-canon, out of continuity. So my question is, what really happened during Civil War? Shouldn't they publish a revised version of Civil War that tells us what exactly happened in the actual continuity of the Marvel Universe in a version where Spider-Man isn't married and doesn't reveal a secret identity to the world? And isn't it odd that a married Spider-Man reveals his secret identity to the world, but an unmarried Spider-Man does not? I am curious as to how that happened. So what really happened during Civil War? It's weird to reread it now, knowing that so much of it is not canon. Of course, 
I think Civil War sucks, so maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's good that it's no longer canon. Maybe the Civil War that actually took place, the one where Spider-Man doesn't reveal a secret identity to the world, is, is, is a lot better. Who knows? We may never know. And that brings us to the end of another episode of the Fantastic Forecast. Coming next time, Fantastic Four, issue 538, and issues 3 and 4 of Civil War. If you have any questions about the Fantastic Four, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter, Dave Elliott, at podcastff. And you can download other episodes of iTunes, or find them all at www.podcastff.podbean.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. <laughs>